So it was, uh, it was 24 years ago. Um, I think it was, a, I can't remember if it was May or the summer, August of 99, um, that I began my first day staffing the UW-Madison chapter. It was at our chapter camp at Cedar Campus. And uh, I showed up the second day of camp. Um, uh, the cur- current staff at the time was saying his goodbyes. He'd spent the day with the leaders. And um, he, was be- he was going before them um, as a group for them to bless him and send him off. Maybe I've shared this story with you before. Um, but uh, I was a little bit surprised at how the, the send-off went. Um, and you might want to blank that for now. Don't put that up there yet. Um, and, um, so what happened was they basically roasted this guy. So his name was Jeff. He's a great guy, partially his fault. Be honest. It was his personality. He's extremely sarcastic, funny guy. And they were really sarcastic with him. I'm listening to this. And as I'm watching this happen, I have this terrible kind of horrible feeling. What have I gotten myself into? Um, is this how I would want to go out after having served the chapter for four or five years? Because um, they reminded him of all the mistakes that he made. It was extremely painful. And uh, it was, it was, there was a part of it that was funny, but you know the problem with sarcasm, there's truth in it, right? And so I remember the next day going, my first meeting with the leaders, and the first conversation is, I was really troubled by your send-off for the, the staff last night, I do think it was wrong. And let me tell you why. A lot of pushback, a lot of disagreement. Um, it was fun. It was funny. We had a good time. Sure, you had a good time, but it was at his expense. And I remember um, telling them again, sarcasm always has a grain of truth in it. It's what you, bu- you build it on. And that can be very painful, uh, especially if Jeff left because he felt like he wasn't adequate in his role as staff. I don't know all the reasons he ended up leaving, but I know a lot of staff who have left, and that's often part of the, the bigger picture. Um, and I remember then we, we prayed, and as we were praying, uh, I won't tell you who the students are because some of them you know um, and have met before. One, one in particular, um, at the end of the prayer, looked up, he was the chapter president at the time, and said, uh, guys, I think Peter is right. I don't think we honored him. I think we dishonored him, and we need to deal with it. And so the agreement was we bring it before the chapter as a whole at night. We talk about it and then decide what our next step was going to be. I remember that chapter meeting because I got the same re- we got the same response from the student leaders who were upset that we would bring this up and push back. Again, there's, 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 it was fun. It was funny, but it also was painful. And it kind of went back and forth like that a little bit until – Wayne Becker, who many of you know, who actually had come that week in order to be with the chapter. He was our faculty advisor. He was a professor of biology at the UW, for those of you who don't know, plant biology, right? Um, And now is an esteemed professor and uh, professor emeritus. He said to everyone, do you mind if I say something? And remember this, the room we were in, he's standing on on an up, he's on a stairs and he's a bit elevated. And he said, I want to tell you that this past semester, I sent three different students to the Ivy chapter, and they all returned with the same response. I am never going back to InterVarsity. This is the most unloving community on campus. 
it's an interesting story to start this out with, right? Um, I can tell you, I don't remember what we did. I do know that sobered the students up. They deeply respected him. Who was I? I was a nobody. They'd known me a little bit from the year before, but Wayne, they deeply respected. He discipled many of the student leaders at the time. And, and his word had impact and meaning, and that humbled them. I do remember we prayed. I don't remember if there was a response to Jeff in response. That All the details are kind of, you know, it's been 25 years, right, 24. It's a little bit um, cloudy now. Um, but I can tell you that the, the goal for the next year became clear. We needed to figure out how to become a more loving community on campus. So this passage that we're looking at, Philippians chapter 2, um, actually is a call Paul is giving to the Philippians church to, to, for, for them to kind of live the story of Jesus by becoming a humble and loving community and humbly loving and serving each other, right? Because that's where it starts. It starts with our love towards one another, Why right? We can't we can't really show love to the world unless we can first show love to one another. Um, um, and so kind of, I want to simply describe it and then I want to talk a little bit about it. So this again is mainly found in verses five through 11. If you have it open up the scripture, if you have it on your phone, you can look at it that way. I'm sorry, I meant to make copies, but didn't, forgot to do that this morning. Um, but anyway, you know the picture, right? Before becoming um, a man, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus Christ, pre-existed in a state of glory and equality with God. He was creator God, is another way to put it, right? And he was one with God, the Father, and God, the Spirit. Um, but unlike Adam, who was only a man, a creation of God, and who tried to seize equality with God, um, God, the Messiah, who was already God, chose not to exploit his equal status. Instead, he emptied himself of his godly status, the divine privilege of being recognized as God. By becoming human, he became a servant to all, and even more than that, he allowed himself to be humiliated uh, in obedience to the Father by going to his death on a cross. And we know that because of that reality, we have a way in which we can have a relationship with God. Um, by the way, I, I borrowed some of this explanation from the Bible Project. I won't lie. I didn't make that all up. or It's not all my own words. Um, but I think you need to know, I mean, the verb empty that he talks about, um, in every instance in the New Testament, this one included means to deprive oneself or to choose to deny oneself of something that you're due. That was a choice that he made on his behalf to deny himself the glory that was due him as God by taking on human flesh and becoming a man, right? In order that he could love and serve us in humility. There, so th this is kind of the pinnacle, like I would say, love act or act of humility in all of, in, in the entire, entire history of creation, right? That Jesus, creator God, would humble himself, become a man, and die to restore us to relationship. Um, there isn't anything else that you can, you can say is like the pinnacle. Right? There is no other act that's more humble than God himself doing that for us. Um, and through God, the Father's power and grace, Jesus the Messiah's shameful death 
um, has been reversed through the resurrection and now God, he exalted him, right? Bestowing upon him the name that is above all names so that all creation um, should and will one day recognize that Jesus is the Messiah to the glory of God the Father. Now, Paul's intention in this was not to present a detailed theological thesis on the gospel. It's a very simple explanation, but rather to remind the Philippians of what Christ had done, emphasizing the humility of Jesus, his exaltation, and our call or their call to imitate him. Right? That's the key here. He's telling them this in a simple way because he's saying, this is how you should act towards one another. So let's throw up that question again. It's kind of tiny and hard to see. Can can you put that back up? Yeah, so the first one is, how does this passage hit you? How does this passage hit you when you listen to it? it? What does it impress on you? You can talk that around your table. Why don't you go ahead have a short discussion? We'll give you a minute, two minutes. So how are any of you like are any of you inspired by this? How many of you are inspired by this? Like yeah, that's interesting. Why are you inspired by this, Linda? Here, I want to I'm going to give you the microphone. Sorry. I how do we turn this Oh, There we go. There you. Go. Well, it's it's such a Can you hear me? Okay. It evokes a, a longing in me. You know, I I long to be like that and yeah, I just don't feel it's a, it's an example. Paul is calling us to, you know, if you look at it and you understand more what's behind it um, and this I found helpful. I mean, we all know what sin is, right? What, if you look at it, the word uh, kata, right? Means to fail or to miss the goal. But what is the goal that we're missing? Anybody? I mean, is it the list of commandments? I mean, if you look at scripture, the goal is really defining the greatest commandment, right? The goal is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, right? There is nothing more important than that, right? So everything is kind of encapsulated in this idea of love. Um, and, and, uh, and because of, and, and this is the deal, how do we love people, right? And so here's an indication Genesis points out, and I've said this before, and we know this to be true, that we're all made in the image of God. Every human is a sacred being who represents the creator and is worthy of respect. And sin is a failure to love God and others and a failing to treat people with the honor and love they deserve. That's the greatest commandment. Regardless of who they are, right? Regardless of whether or not they're your friends or they're another believer, they could be a complete stranger. They could be your enemy, right? And what does God say? Love your enemy, right? Right? Pray for those who persecute you. God, the greatest commandment, this, this statement, this kind of idea of what he's doing, Jesus is setting the standard for us of what it looks like to love God and others in his life, right? But in this one thing, a man who deserves honor and respect and glory, who is the pinnacle of all creation, right? Jesus, creator, God himself, becoming a man, humbling himself, becoming a servant, which actually means slave, because Jews were considered as slaves to the Romans during the time. 
which actually means slave, becoming a slave for us and dying in our place, right? A, a, a humbling death only for criminals. That's humility, right? And that's what he's kind of calling us to. So he creates this standard that's so high, it's absolutely impossible. Um, and he calls us to love, to love him and to love one another in this way, right? And we, and we see this demonstrated in Jesus' life in a lot of ways. As I was talking with Lori about it, the most real one I can remember is Jesus is on trial. He's with Pilate, right? And they're asking him about his kingdom. And he says, if I wanted to, I could call a legion of angels right now, right? He has the authority to call a legion of angels, 6,000 angels who can stand up against one. He brings 6,000 angels that could have completely set him free, could have destroyed Rome, the whole world. It didn't matter. Instead, he decided he chose, right, to stay in that place, to suffer and die because it was an act of love, right, on our behalf, right? And he calls us to be like this as well. It's pretty, pretty challenging. So, okay, so let's talk a little bit more about that. Go ahead and flip the next one. What is challenging about this call to be humble and love like Jesus? Talk more about that around your table. Okay, so I know you're getting, now you're getting into more spirited discussion, so now's the wrong time to cut you off, but I need to. All right, so who want to share, what is challenging about this call to be humble and love like Jesus? Linda, again, all right. We think best when we speak, so. <laughs> just kidding. Um, I just had this thought while we were talking through it that maybe it's challenging because there's a lie from Satan about it. Because, like, when you're humble, you actually feel a release. You know, you feel like the burden of your reputation and pride and things kind of shed off of you when you are in a humble state. So maybe there's just this lie that we believe that we're going to lose our reputation or lose our little edge in the world if we become humble but it's not true yeah that's a good point thank you yeah someone else oh. i think when you think of being humble put it close to your mouth you think of being less mm-hmm. and we like to think we're something i mean just to get up in the morning you have to feel like you're something yeah you know it was while living and feeding this body and doing whatever and so it, it's our perception of yeah. what that is and i think all of this, like love like Jesus, in the moment you can. For the long haul, much harder. Yeah. And yeah. we really need help. Yeah. Hey, so if I'm nothing, who am I, right? That not that? Anyone else? It's a challenge, right, for us. I, I think in our culture, right, um, you know, uh, humility is a challenge and selfishness is a real thing, right? I mean, back in Rome, humility uh, was countercultural. Um, there was pridefulness of status um, and a lot of honor that went around those particular people. And humility wasn't even really a word. You can even think about that uh, in that particular time. It's a very new concept. And we have this concept of humility and we really do deeply respect humble people i mean who's who can we respect more than i mean the common example is mother Teresa, right 
who lived an extremely humble life and gave up so much and did such wonderful things in the world. And yet, who are the people that we lift up and praise? Who are the people that everybody wants to be like? It's not Mother Teresa. It's, it's people who have questionable character like Elon Musk, right? People who are successful, right? People who, who, who accomplish things that we look at. And that's because culturally we're transactional and not relational. Culturally, we care more about the value of a person in terms of what they produce than the relationship that person has, who they are in relationship to each other, right? We don't find our value based on who our mother or father is or the fact that we're children of God. We find our value in our title, in our accomplishments. I was thinking about this, um, um, and, I, and we've, we've had a, and I know we know this isn't true, and this is the irony of it, right? I, um, we, we've had a number of people recently Love love ones who have died and passed on, right? If we evaluated them based on the world's perspective transactionally, I hope it's okay if I say this, Tom would definitely be at the top for what he accomplished, right? Right? Man, well-respected doctor, eye doctor, accomplished much in his field, and probably Derek would be at the bottom. But is that how we knew them? Is that true? That's not. In the end, it didn't really matter. What mattered was the fact that they were loved and known and the relationships that they had. See, it tells you the contrast between how the world sees it and how God sees it. The world is transactional and God is relational. God isn't, you know, so that's something that's really important for us to know as we move forward. And that's, but that's one of the reasons why it's so challenging because all around us, the world is speaking out transactionally. This is what makes you value. This is what's important. And so this being humble and loving, moving from a position of power, right? Moving from a place of, of, of glory and honor to a lowly servant is just, just, it just doesn't make sense, right? It's ridiculous. It's insane. Why would anybody do that, right? And I'm sure there are a lot of people today that don't understand Jesus because of that same reality, because they bought into this bigger lie. Okay, move on to the next question. So I want you to look at the whole passage, not just 11, but the whole passage. What do you see in this passage of scripture, verses 1 through 11, that gives you hope that this is possible, that it is possible to be like Jesus? Go ahead and talk around your table. Okay. Tom wants to share something. (laughs) You seem rather spirited. Do you want to share something, Tom? You don't have an end? Just has a thought? All right. Anyone want to share? All right, Betsy. Um, For me, it was just looking at the passage of... Oh, shoot. There we go. Um, I feel like I'm hopeless in my own strength to, like, muster up humility and love and be not transactional yeah. but i just found like in the first couple lines it talks about like if you have encouragement of being united with christ or um if any common sharing in the spirit so there's like okay i'm united with christ and i have his spirit yeah. so he's at work in me doing transforming me beyond what i have yep. my own power to do which yep. is good news to me yeah thank you good anyone else 
No one wants to say anything. Okay. It's all right. You know, I Betsy, thanks, because Betsy's on it, right? So Paul doesn't doesn't ask us just to do the impossible. He shows us that it is possible because of what God has already given us, right? And that's how he starts things off, right? With the, and, he, and, he, and he lists four different um, uh, kind of realities that we have because we belong to Christ, all right? And the first is just this reality of be, belonging to Christ. So what it means is we're, we're united with him. We're, we're in union with him. We're one with Christ, right? Uh, John puts it this way, Christ, he's in us and we're in him, right? There's this relationship that happens, the Father, the Son, in the Spirit with us as well, and the body of Christ, right, all together, right? And because of that, God, God, God's power, God's love, um, God's, God's help is present to us. Um, there's something else you need to understand. This is important for us to set straight, especially as evangelical believers or former evangelical believers, however you state yourself, right? Um, salvation in, in the first century church was, was seen as a relationship, not a transaction. So it's ongoing. It's not, it's not a point in time. All right. So, 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 and there's three parts to it. And Paul points that out throughout this book. First, there's the past, right? We're forgiven. We're justified from our past sins. That means they no longer have power over us. We're no longer slaves, right? To them anymore. We're no longer held accountable for them. In God's eyes, we're seen as holy in his sight. The second is present. We, we, we are justified now. We are being sanctified, right? We're being made into his image. This is an ongoing process in communion with Christ because we're reunited with him, right? This ability to live like him, to be humble, right? To love in the way he did, to kind of empty ourselves of our, of our desires, of our wants in order to serve others, even to the point of death, um, that comes as he changes and transforms us on the inside, right? And that's something we're in relationship with. And it's also the ability to resist temptation, right? And to give into the power of sin today. And the future part, the past, justified, present, sanctified, and the future is glorified, right? One day we will be glorified. But you note in this passage, there Paul says something like, in uh, this passage, in the earlier parts, he says, I'm... I'm convinced. What did he say? How does he put it? God, God, um, uh, no, there's something else. I forget the, the particular passage, but basically what he's saying is, I'm convinced that one day you'll be in heaven. They didn't have this assurance that we talk about all the time that they were, that they were going to be glorified with the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not true. What it means, though, is they recognize that this was a real ongoing relationship. And at any point, they could say, Jesus, I've had enough of you. I want nothing to do with you and walk away. Right? That's their choice. Right? There, it wasn't so much God looking at them and saying, transactionally, you're unworthy. You haven't lived up to my expectations. Be gone. Right? It was more them saying, I don't want you anymore. I'm walking away from this. I think we need to look at at salvation from a different perspective. It's not, I've been saved, everything's good. And we tr this troubles us because we see a lot of people, they, they proclaim Jesus Christ and then they live their life any way they want to. And we would say, well, you aren't showing signs that you are a Christian. Well, it doesn't matter. I prayed the prayer, I'm good. <laughs> we know that's not true, right? It's ongoing relationship and we are transformed over time into his image. And the very thing we're talking about here, becoming like Christ is impossible completely until we get to heaven and we're in his presence, right? 
it's kind of cool when you think about it that way. But it also, you also recognize, again, he's not calling us to like, here's a bunch of things you have to do. If, he, if God was transactional, he would have left us under the law. Right? But he's relational. So he invites us into a relationship instead. He goes, this is the better way. Right? This is the way I'm calling you to. Um, and this is all relational. This is what God wants. Uh, us to respond. So that's first part, comfort from his love, right? That another word that's used is consolation, which means we are moving with God towards hope and light with Christ and our hearts are, are beating in union with him. So regardless of what happens, the circumstances we face, the troubles we're in, we can be comforted, right? We can experience his love in those situations or circumstances, regardless of whether things are great or things are dark. Regardless of whether your loved ones are all alive or they've died, you have God with you to help you and to comfort you, right? It doesn't mean that you'll always be happy, but you can always experience joy, which is a major theme of this book, right? And you can learn to be content in every circumstance. We have fellowship in the spirit, right? It's not just us alone, but we're together doing this. The koinonia is the word, right? Um, the spirit who indwells all of us binds us together in love. We are one in the spirit of God and need to act that in that way, right? That's kind of live it out. Um, and this is uh, this, uh, just so you know this, again, maybe I don't know if I said it or Scott said it. Again, Paul always talks when he says you, it means you all, not just you personally, you all. It means this is a call to all of us. He's speaking to the body as a whole, so you have to read it with those eyes. And sometimes when we do, everything looks different. We realize, oh, I'm not alone. There are others journeying with me. I think a lot of us in our culture that is transactional and individualistic tend to bear our burdens on our own and don't share them with each other. We make decisions on our own and we don't share them with each other. And then we become even more transactional. Or another way to put it is we become more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, when, when everything is based on what's best for you. Uh, what? Self-centered. Yeah, I would say, What? consumer right we become more consumers than we actually become contributors we become more a person who sits on the outside than a person who's a part of the family on the inside who looks at we become people who look at this and say what do you have for me rather than what do i have to give right i've already received so much right and then in the end from all of this we have this and this is what happens god in our relationship with him this love is his agape love poured into us we become tender and compassionate towards those in need we have intense care um, and deep sympathy for one another and for those outside as well and that transforms who we are and how we see the world around us and we no longer care as much about what we can get out of it we care more about what we can do in order to bring glory to god right um, and to bless others uh, there's a great couple of great examples if you have a chance watch this fantastic video on the uh, 2016 world triathlon series Cozumel Mexico was super hot anybody know this story two, two brothers are in a race both from England uh, Alistair and John Johnny Brownlee are their names it's just a triathlon right it is the world championship it is the last one Johnny is leading the race if he wins he wins the whole thing he becomes the world champion about a half a mile from the end he's overcome heat exhaustion he starts, he doesn't know where he is. He starts stumbling. He's running really funny. You should see the video. You can tell he's in big trouble. He's stumbling. He can't see anymore. He doesn't even know where he's going. His brother is right behind him. 
in second place, and beside him is the is the third place guy. He runs up, his brother Alistair runs up to Johnny, who is going to win. He puts his arm around him and he carries him to the finish line, runs him, he can't carry him. And before, when he gets to the finish line, he pushes his brother over the finish line. It's a super, it's a beautiful picture of love, right? I'm going to help you make it to the end. I'm going to do everything I can in my power. In the, in the process though, the third place guy wins. And, and he's like, yeah, he's super excited. He's pumped up in the air. And everybody's looking at him going, you selfish. <laughs> right? Because you see this beautiful picture of brotherly love in this example. And you also see an example of someone who was transactional. Right? You see relationship. You see transaction. You see the difference. And I think what did someone comment to me, maybe it was Lori, 20 years from now, no one will remember the guy who won. But that story will be used over and over again because of how it showed love. There's just a lot of examples like that I think we can begin. Even a good friend of some of the staff here, Phyllis LePoe, who left staff years ago, um, she's an amazing person, full of life, super fun to be with, wonderful hospitality. Um, When she she completed and retired from her ministry uh, with InterVarsity, it was like five or six years ago, she wondered what she was supposed to do, and the Lord spoke to her about giving, instead, take your time now and, and, and feed the hungry, care for the widows, and visit those in prison. So that's what she did. She died um, a year or two ago now from cancer. But before that, she, the last few years of her life, she poured out on behalf of others. She could have retired. She could have relaxed. She was a pr- prolific author with her husband who ran InterVarsity Press. Instead, she gave her time and energy in order to love others. So here's a question I have for us as a body, and we'll just take five more minutes. I know we're running a little bit late. Um, I, I think the question, I think we do pretty good when it comes to loving each other. I feel like as a church, we, we understand on some level what it means to be a relational community. You know? but, I, I, but here's my question. We are in a season of change and transition, right? We are moving into a new place. How can FCBC build a church that's foundation is relational? How can we be like Jesus moving forward? Why don't you just take a minute to talk around your table and then pray, all right? And I will close us in prayer. I'll tell us when to move to prayer and, and, when, and we'll close in prayer. Okay, I want every table to think of one idea and I'm gonna go around and we're just gonna say it real short and to the point, okay? One, one thing, one simple thing. And we'll start with this table. One, one idea. When you're when you're together, greet one another with holy love. Okay, thank you. You guys have. Yeah. We were just saying to to make this in-person worship experience a priority. Mm-hmm. All right. To make fellowship and worship together a priority. We talked about church not just being here on Sunday. Yeah. Um, the relational peace really is happening in our small groups um, and continuing to nurture that. But yeah. yet we also talked about the outreach of the relation. The relation, the relational peace inward has to match a relational peace outward. Yeah. And we didn't get very far in talking about it. Yeah. 
You guys have something? Good one. <laughs> I was at High Point this week, and it was the same message. <laughs> oh, really? That's interesting. <laughs> and his purpose was that you have to be in groups. He gave a passage where the disciples didn't see Jesus until they met at dinner and they were eating and that you have to bring people in and that you have to connect with them. And really, I think the number one question you have to do is ask yourself, why? what do we really want as a church? Because yeah. you've been up Bayside yeah. for a long time and... The fruit hasn't really been that great, so you just have to decide, are we going to commit to the outside or just stay inward? Yeah, thank you. Do you want to? One thing that we're trying to do right now is invest in a staff person whose main role is to build relationships within the church. Um, I just thought of Psalm 27 says, one thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I think if we can strengthen our relationship with Jesus by like fascination and enjoying his presence and adoring him in his beauty, then uh, that's like us, the core of us that when we meet together will draw us closer to, together through our that fascination with Jesus' beauty. Tom, all right, great. All right, more potlucks. More potlucks. It, right. No, but it builds on what Joan just said, right? If, yeah. if God meets us when we're eating together, then gosh, eat together. Yeah. yeah. All right, so pray around your tables. Just one person, pray around your for, me, for each table, uh, in your table groups, and I will close this. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus, for this this beautiful example that you've set for us that makes it possible for us to have a relationship with you and one another. Thank you, Jesus, that we're not alone in this call, but we're called to do this together and that you're with us, empowering us, guiding us, directing us. Help us to be continually open. Help us to humility as a choice, to choose to be humble, to um, choose not to go after the things we may deserve because of our position or place, but instead um, to be humble and love one another. Help us, God, first and foremost, too, to build this body on relationship with you and each other before anything else. We just pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.